Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Hello, everybody. My name is Polly Hammond, and you are listening to Uncorked, the Italian wine podcast series about all things marketing and communication. Join me each week for candid conversations with experts from within and beyond the wine world as we explore what it takes to build a profitable business in today's constantly shifting environment. Today, we welcome Adam Leschmere, veteran wine writer, consultant editor of Club Inologique, and all-around lovely bloke. Adam is bringing the skinny on this week's London Wine Fair, and he's letting me ask him all sorts of questions about regenerative agriculture, the world's most expensive wine, and how the hell are we supposed to communicate a complex topic to different audiences across fractured markets? Let's get into it. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Good morning, Polly. I'm very well, thank you. It's nice to see your face. I know that nobody else gets to see the video, but I do. I haven't seen you in person for years. I mean, years. None of us have seen anybody in person for years, haven't we? When was it? Was it it Portugal, Barcelona? Yeah, it was Portugal. Portugal for the the conference, yeah. Yeah, for the MUST conference, which I have to say, I loved that conference. I'm so sad that they don't still do that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a good time for me to put in a plug. You know, actually, this year's Wine to Wine is all focused on communication. So nudge, nudge might be might be a good opportunity. Um, so you are saving my bacon. I was not able to get to the London Wine Fair because I had tickets to a rock concert, but you were. And I want to hear all about it because we've had, I mean, we're just starting to go back to events. You know, I, I notice there are huge shifts in what's being presented and how we're communicating. So, let's start with that, Adam. How was your How was your visit to the London Wine Fair? Yeah, it was. It was very, very nice, Polly. What can I say? I mean, it was. Um, it, it's it's a really interesting um, event that I think that the British wine trade certainly has a lot of affection for. And I don't think you'd use the word affection or nice for an operation like Provine, for example. You know, Um, people, they love Provine. Especially not after this year. Well, exactly. They love it. I didn't go, by the way, but, you know, I heard all about it. People people respect it and like it, but they regard it as as a sort of, you know, like like you might regard going, you know, a a military campaign or something like that. It's something that you kind of It's work. It's hard work. The yeah. London Trade Fair um, has the feeling of a sort of um, rather nice kind of village fete, um, you know, with, uh, it, I went on the Tuesday, I arrived, I went, for the first day I arrived at about um, quarter to 10, people were queuing up, the queue wasn't too big, and it was really quite, quite mellow all day, it was quite a mellow little event, um, with, um, you know, lots of the English trade. A few of the big stands, Inotri are there, Bibendum are there, um, Hatch Mansfield, a few of the big hitters, but also, um, you know, and, and a lot of, of the, the English wine wine producers as well. 
Um, so Night Timber are there with their great big bus, um, etc. And then a lots of rather sort of smaller esoteric. Um, so, for example, you had wines of Uzbekistan, you had wines of Ukraine. Um, people trying to get, obviously, you know, trying to get a toehold in the in the UK market. Um, and yeah, I mean, the Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan stand, I kind of hung around there for a bit, but it seemed to be mostly fruit wines. Um, and I couldn't quite sort of see where the grape wines were. And so I, so I, so I moved on, you know. Um, but, but yes, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's a very enjoyable event. And it's something that I, I think, I think the trade um, w- would have absolutely loved it this year because um, they will see it as something that has, has been sort of pulled off against the odds. You know, I mean, for a start, the behemoth um, provide. Yeah, organised its dates exactly exactly at the same time as the English Wine Fair, so that might have completely stymied it. Um, hat, hats off to um, Hannah Tovey, who um, I've known for 20 years, an old colleague of mine from Decanter, now has been the CEO of the London Fair for the last uh, about the last 10 years, I think now, um, for pulling off a really good, useful, interesting event. And uh, you, you can't say fairer than so that. So it was useful. I mean, I guess I, I think one of the things I noticed, so I did Vin Expo in Paris and that was like the first big event back. I mean, that was like going from doing nothing to, oh my God, gigantic event. Right. And, um, and I, I almost felt like now I don't come at it from a buyer side of it. I come at it from the marketing and comm side, but I almost felt like the community and the togetherness of it was even more important than necessarily for, you know, someone like me, the business side of it, because it was just delightful to be reminded why we put in what is really hard work to sell wine, you know, that we do get to go to these spaces and there's a congeniality congeniality to it um, that we've all missed out on. So I, I imagine that that's a lot of what you're talking about with the London Wine Fair, that there was a sense of community and togetherness. Yeah, and I think I think you know that the, the, the key business of any wine fair, any trade fair, and in, in, in any business is to get the right mix of congeniality and 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 useful hard work. You know, um, and someone like yeah. Provine perhaps goes the other way, um, and the English trade fair perhaps the the, the the pendulum swung a bit more in the, in the in the way of congeniality. So, for example, I was just leading on Friday on on Tuesday, and I saw um, you know. A, Dante Cecchini, who's a, an old Italian uh, Italian um, wine communicator who used to work at Banffy, an old friend of mine. So great to chat to him, great to taste the wines he was presenting. I wasn't particularly interested in the wines, but that was the congeniality side. But on the usefulness side, um, what, what the wine fair, um, what anybody will tell you, um, that um, you know, upstairs in that, that sort of balcony, the mezzanine area at London Olympia, they have this section called, um, called um, uh, Wild Earth, um, and all the untried wines all the, and all the new wines. So I had a very, very interesting session at the canned wine stand. Um, and, you know, I, I had to tell us about wine. that. Well, I mean, you know, can, canned wines, I, I think these guys are at the, I think they're on the crest of the wave. I don't think, I think they're slightly ahead of their time because I don't know if the world is ready for canned So wine. was this like Copper Crew? Was was this like Copper Crew who's done a really good job out of the yeah, UK Copper with their Crew, canned wines? Yeah. Copper yeah. Crew, when in Rome, um, and uh, a couple of others. There's a, there's a company called Nice, um, and I forget the name of the. Was um, this the first time that they'd had canned wines at the London Wine Fair? I 
think so, yes. I don't think these guys were around three years ago at the last edition of the fair. Was that section busy? Was there a lot of interest in it from trade and buyers? No, wasn't half the interest in the section just further down the way, which was, you know, the the, um, the, the you know the new wines, the unusual wines, the natural wines, the undiscovered. Um, but yes, there's, there was a certain buzz around it. But that's why I say I think they're slightly ahead of their time. I think in five years' time, there's going to be even more of a buzz when canned wine gets to the same level as, 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 as canned beer has, the same level of interest, the same level of uptake. Um, at the moment, it's nowhere near that. But the key thing for me is that these are very, very good wines they're putting in the cans. You know, there's no way that the, I mean, canned wine always used to be, didn't it? It always used to be some, you know, you'd, you'd expect something sort of mildly spritzy and light and totally tasteless. Some, exactly. Carbonated yeah. Sav Blanc or something the, like that. Exactly. Yeah. That, you, that you take on a picnic and glug on a boat or something, but you wouldn't t- take near your dinner table. But these wines, I would be very, very happy. Um, to serve these at, at dinner, you know, albeit it would be slightly weird. And all my guests would think, my God, what are you doing with a can of wine here? It still is a very weird thing to put a ring pull on a can of wine. But um, that sort of thing. I guess I- at some point someone has to do it though, right? Like one of us has to rock up to the dinner table with our canned wine in, in order to start making that happen, that it has to go from sort of presentation to, to utility. I have a question about those stands. So um, you're kind of my my proxy on this one. Were those um, booths manned by representatives who are internal to the brand or were they manned by distributors? Uh, what we're talking what are we talking about the so 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 wines the canned the, wines oh the canned wines they were the, manned, the canned wines they were manned by the 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 the, the people who run the business. The producers. So for example, I was speaking to Oli yeah. Fennell, who is the CEO of um, the CEO of uh, Copper Crew. Copper Crew. Um, but these guys are—they're they're all like twenty-five years old. They're, all, they're the same age as my children, you know. And they're, they're very, very sharp young guys, you know. And, and I would say there probably wasn't a single person over over probably over thirty-five there. Yeah, that's why I was asking because I really wonder. I, I think that it's easy in. Uh, the wine trade for us to rely on our distributors to go out and message for it. But I've been so interested. So if we're going to talk about Copper Crew, I'd love to actually have them on the podcast sometime. They are very dynamic online and how they talk. They represent well of the brand. And I, I sort of wonder if because they're in that those early phases where they are out literally hawking the wares and giving the messaging themselves. And this is not just them. This is a lot of people in sort of the up and coming, the natural wines, the canned wines, whatever. They're doing the hard yards themselves. Are they just so much more dynamic and better able to to get that, you know, to to business language to catalyze movement, um, to actually get us interested in what they're doing? Because I'm sorry to say, there are a lot of trade fairs where when it's distro behind the stand, it's just boring as fuck. Like, you know, I I couldn't agree more, Polly. I mean. Yeah, because with these guys, the, the the palpable enthusiasm of people who feel that they are doing something that they love and doing something valuable and doing something new, and they're doing something that they, they they're pretty confident will take off. I mean, I would I would invest in these guys if I was an angel investor. I would invest in these guys for certain. So then we move from the canned wines to the natural funky organic and i use funky in a cultural context not a a wine tasting context just the natural wines 
this is not something that is necessarily new, but you saw big growth in that category represented at the fair? Absolutely. I mean, I'll take one example. Um, I stopped off at Graft, um, which, as you you know, used to be Red Squirrel. Nick Darlington used to be Red Squirrel. He teamed up with um, with um, David Knott of Knotted Vine. And I always, I mean, they won, I think, rather sweetly, they won eighth best producer, in eighth best distributor in, in the UK. And they were tweeting about that. Which I think is rather rather sweet in English. It's like you might sort of come third in the egg and spoon yeah. race or something at the village fete we were talking about. But um, joking aside, these guys have got a superb range of wines, um, and and I always love going to their table and tasting because, as I was saying, you know about the canned wine guys, you're talking to people who are absolutely there with their fingers in the dirt, you know. You know, they, they're 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 not making the wine, but they're they're as good as uh, you know. They're and they're they're just yeah. they're just presenting stuff that's very very interesting. But there's quite an interesting sort of development there. I saw with with a Rioja um, that um, I forget the name of it, but it was a Rioja that struck me as exceedingly well made, exceedingly modern, incredibly zeitgeisty, and you know, d- delicious in its way. But I also noted. You know, if I tasted that blind, I would have no idea where that wine came from. I might probably plump for Tempranillo because there are a few pointers there. But but whether it had any Rioja um, typicity or not, I really couldn't say. And it struck me as slightly like the um, the, the way the In Pursuit of Balance movement went in, in, in Sonoma. You remember In Pursuit of Balance where towards the end, you know, some of these wines that became sort of slightly sort of culty, you know, and, and some of these wines you felt, you know, California should not be producing, you know, Chardonnay this lean and this, you know, you know, mm. this tight and this. I mean, it's still a huge argument. I am. I, um, I, I talked to one of my clients and then, then I actually have a, a graph, Nick Darlington story. Um, I talked to one of my clients about natural wine and what they said was we get into this space where we still talk about natural wine as it was. 10 years ago, you know, we're natural wine, we're accidents that were happening. We were trying to figure out how to get things out the door, but that actually you have to remember the natural wine makers themselves are progressing. It's just getting so much better year on year on year. And I I think that that's probably a really interesting thing for us as communicators to not fall into our own trappings of, oh, you know, natural wine. These are the, this is what we expect from natural wines, which, um, you know, I'm going to step on my crank and get into trouble with all the natural wine producers if I go any further than that. But that's the thing. And so if you kind of reflect back upon natural wine tasting over the years, as you were going through those wines, were they reflecting a, a growth and an awareness and improved production? Absolutely. I mean, that, that's why I brought up the example of the, 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 the Rioja, because so much, you know, we, mm. we, we, we spend so much time tasting wines that we, 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 we say this wine is obviously well made. It's obviously an accomplished wine. It's obviously got no flaws whatsoever, but it's just kind of a bit sort of a bit too perfect, you know, and that's the way, you know, if, if you go to the raw wine fair or go to real wine, um, now the, the the percentage of excellent wines you're tasting is massively higher than it was ten years ago or eight years ago. Now you know seven out of ten wines are absolutely excellent. Five or six years ago, three out of ten wines were excellent. The other the, the other seven might have been undrinkable, like cider. You know, um, so the wines are getting better and better, but I think they're losing some of their sort of joy. 
you know, the joy of finding an interesting discovery. And that I'm talking about Nick's, I'm talking about Graft here, so that was just one of their wines, and I was talking to him about it at the time. But, you know, I, I tasted some really, really good, some really fine wines on that stand, just wines that strike me as being so essentially modern in their sensibility, you know, and so tuned. I think that's the other thing. These guys are clever, and they they, they present wines that are tuned to what the world that you know that the savvy wine audience is wanting to drink at the moment. Well, we've grown up too. You know, like it, one of the things that we see. I don't want us to get too hung up on natural wines, but one of the things that we see is that oftentimes it's embraced by younger drinkers who don't want to drink the wines that their parents have been drinking. They want to, you know, experiment. They want to try new things. Except that is a, a doorway to discovering all the different wines that, that are out there, all the different profiles that we love, you know, the, the wines that suit us in our palate. And then we ourselves grow as wine drinkers. And I, I find it interesting when I, I kind of see some of the derision or the gatekeeping around natural wine and younger drinkers that the, um, the traditional wine industry feels so threatened by it instead of being like, yeah, get them in the door because if they identify as wine drinkers, we get them, you know, they're not like, exactly. I'm the beer drinker. I'm the sour beer drinker. Um, I have a great story about Nick that, that applies to this. And I, I'd be curious with what you were seeing. So I had a client who, um, I think that they sold the winery, but they were one of Nick's, uh, wineries years ago. And the big thing that they were doing were key kegs that because they were French producer, British uh, marketplace, lots and lots of kegs. And this was before we were all talking about alternative packaging and yeah. climate change and all of that. Are we seeing more of the, you know, what I would describe as trade facing alternative packaging? Yeah. I mean, um, was that anywhere in it? Yeah, the, the, definitely. Well, there is the, the WTAF, um, you know, the amusingly named WTAF movement, Wine Trade for Alternative Packaging. Yeah. Um, wine Trade for Alternative Formats. Um, and they they have a weird and wonderful selection of, of formats there. I mean, they have the case. Those are the bag in box. Those are the BIB, right? They right? have BIB the guys bag in box. Who they have cardboard bottles. They also have things that look like sort of glorified fire extinguishers um, that... Um, I forget what they're called, um, but they're infinitely recyclable, infinitely re refillable, um, and therefore they're absolutely for for the trade. So we're seeing a lot more of that as well. Was trade interested? You know, were people lining up to learn about that? I wouldn't say people were lining up. No, um, but Damn. you know, I went to I went to these this grouping. I went to their first tasting at the Institute of Masters of Wine about about um, eight or nine months ago, and certainly the trade was interested. There was a flurry of interest. You know, Jancis was there, and Justin Howard Sneed was there, and you know, all the sort of key sort of London crew were there. London journalist um, grouping were there. <laughs> the interest at the moment is with the is is uh, you know on the on the press side. People want to write about this stuff. Editors want to write about it. Um, and um, I, I imagine that the interest from the trade is around the corner. Other than kind of the natural wines and the Rioja, were there any big standouts from within the, you know, what I'm going to describe as the traditional, the, the people who are always there? Something that you looked at and you're like, wow, this has really changed how they're marketing, presenting, or what they're offering since pre-pandemic? Yeah, that's a really good question, Polly. And um, I've thought about it. And I, 
you know, I was only there for a day, you know, and 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 that day goes really, really fast. Um, I was there with um, with my daughter, as it happens, who's now in the business. It was it was an extraordinary experience because it was the end of the day. It was the end of the day, obviously, but the person behind the stand um, was just going through the motions, you know, just pulling out those bottles, pouring us a sample, giving giving the spiel. This is what it tastes like. This is how it's made. This is a and the next one and the next one and the next one. I didn't get any engagement whatsoever. Um, and um, so I, I, I'd say that it's, it still is, it's still, you know, getting back, I keep saying it was a bit like a village fade. It still is that sort of presentation is, is um, I didn't see anything radical, I have to say. God, that's painful. Don't you just kind of want to jump across the counter and be like, come on, good storytelling, yeah. good communicating, you yeah. know, like be excited about it. Oh, painful. Um, I'm going to touch on one thing that I saw on Twitter this morning, and then I, I have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you while we're here. So I, I noticed on Twitter, you know, where all valuable wine conversations happen, that there was a discussion around London Wine Fair and how do you feel when someone who's not a part of the trade or not a buyer rocks up to your stand and, and they want to taste and they want to drink the, the wine? And, and, you know, people are going back and forth about, well, are they just bludgers, you know, are they boozing it up, which is not something that I tend to see a lot when I'm at trade events, especially with the amount that you have to get through. Um, and I guess what I remarked upon in seeing this discussion going on is that I would have thought right now, coming from the perspective as a marketer, that we want everybody who has any interest in our wine at that table so that we have an opportunity to share the wine and talk to them about it. But it, it sounds like we're still kind of like, no, we really want to only spend our time talking to the people who turn into money. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you do you feel like we're still sort of closed gating that? Uh, well, I, I, funny, I saw that question on Twitter. I saw that tweet. Mm. And I think I must have seen it when it had just gone up. I forget who, who said, who asked the question. I think I must have seen it when it just went up because I clocked it and thought, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to look forward to seeing the answers. But I haven't seen any of the answers. Um, and so you're saying the answers are actually, no, we are already interested in people who are actually going to you know, give us some hard cash. It's both. Yeah. Well, when I saw it, I mean, there aren't a ton of answers. And uh, sorry to everyone who's not seeing the tweet, and I'm not naming who, who put the tweet up. Um, there was a back and forth, you know, anyone who's at the table. But then there is the discussion of are they people who are just there for the yeah. drinking, which I guess it, in my head, I could have understood three years ago being like, oh, really? You know, like this is the same thing as having bachelorettes come into your tasting room. It's not really what you want. Right. But right now, I guess I would have felt like, man, you know, people indoor, butts in seats. If, pe if people want to try our wine and drink it, yeah, we need I that right so. now. I, I mean, it's not like it's, it's not like Vanitaly where you have where 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 the the, the 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 public come in, you know. And if you ever man, you know, I've, I've frequently be behind the stand at Vanitaly, especially the IWSC stand, and the public come in, and it's a total nightmare, you know. And um, yeah. because you get, you know, they, they get pretty boozed up by the end of the day as well. And so you, you don't want those people. But no, I absolutely agree with you. I think you, you really want the people who are, you know, just by very nature of the fact they've rocked up to your stand and they want to try your wine. I mean, you know, that, that's that's interesting. And right. Who's, who's to exactly. know where, where the interest is, is going to come? Um, you know, but we all or you know, like I, I think about it all the time with my husband, my husband, who's got a, a great palate and I intentionally choose not to like 
I can't be judgmental about what's in the glass and, and, and be a good marketer. So if I need someone to go and actually do proper drinking um, research for brands, I need to send my husband to do it. Well, he's not going to walk in the room and be all tradey about everything, but I guarantee he's coming back to me with the stories about how did they present yeah. the wine? You know, what did it taste like? What am I, what should I consider with it as a marketer? So I think it's really easy to mm-hmm. forget that we all have the, the people who message back to us as well, or even just the messaging saying, yeah, it's a good wine, but it, you know, wasn't very dynamic. Nobody seemed to be like super interested in it. And like with everything, um, you know, wine is now a very, very broad church, you know, and it's a much, much broader church than when I joined the trade in 1999. I mean, you know, everybody, I mean, everybody is, is a, everybody is a wine consumer, you know, everybody is interested. So, yeah. That's such a lovely segue, Adam, because the next thing I want to talk to you about, you wrote the article for Club Inologique about Patagonia provisions. I am fascinated by this. I have so many questions about what this and this movement means for the wine industry. Um, So first, just for anyone who doesn't know what Patagonia Provisions is, can you kick down what it is that Patagonia is doing for wine cider and sake? Yeah, well, very, very, very shortly, and in a couple of sentences, Patagonia, as we know, one of the, one of the greatest, trendiest, hippest, and most forward-looking clo- uh, mountain clothing brands in the world. Um, they ten years ago they decided to get into food, and um, the they, they hired Birgit Cameron, who's a very dynamic um, American woman based in Sausalito, to start the Patagonia brand. You to start Patagonia Provisions using the three-point ethos of Patagonia, which is um, the core values are build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, protect nature, and be bound by no convention. That's four, isn't it? Um, and from yeah. that, they, they, they only um, use the most sustainable products. Um, and five or three or four years ago, they decided to get into wine. And the wine thing has taken off now. Um, and um, they so they started, for example, with, I think, um, dried sockeye salmon, smoked sockeye salmon. Um, it was their very, very first food product. So their first food products were aimed very much at the outdoors person. You know, you'd pull on your Patagonia um, fleece and then you'd put the Patagonia sockeye salmon in your backpack as well. You'd eat that by your campfire. Mm-hmm. Um and it was seemed to be a natural progression to get into wine. And they've only just started. They've literally only just started. But they're talking, you know, when I spoke to Birgit Cameron. Yeah, October. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're now talking. I mean, she became slightly coy when I asked her about, um, you know, what the next step. She said, yeah, we might, we might start a winery. I can see them starting a winery, you know, and using the most modern, um, you know, regenerative farming techniques at that, you know, in those vineyards. And they're also talking about whiskey. So uh, watch this space. I I mean, I guess I looked at that and I thought, awesome for them. Like, so great. Anything that opens the door, I'm not down on on them doing it. But they control their routes to market in a way that 
is not offered to or not available to many wine producers, right? They have, you know, they have such a historical audience that really crosses personas. Like one of the jokes around tech events and and, and tech hiring is that you're going to get your Patagonia vest as part of your new hire pack. You know, like they've, they've done so well at establishing purpose, which I think is something that wine kind of dabbles in, but but a lot of brands don't really understand or are interested in, in that like purpose-driven business. So they've already got the purpose, they've already got the impact, they've already got the voice, they've already got the roots to market. How in the world do, does a, a new wine brand or even a pretty established wine brand compete with that? You know, that I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> I mean, what, what strikes me about Patagonia, what strikes me as really, really interesting about this is, is you know, I, I've been, people have been pitching, you know, when I was editor of Decanter.com in 2020, people were pitching me stories about sustainability. Um, and it, I always made the joke that, you know, sustainability, you have to sort of, you know, prop your eyelids open because it was always an extraordinarily boring subject to, to talk about. What's been so fascinating is that the issue of sustainability and now regenerative farming and regenerative agriculture has has now become um, has now become interesting. It's, it's finally become sexy, if I can use that word, uh, which, which is, you know, a, a way of describing it. Um, and, 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 you know, in, in Jamie Good's phrase um, in, in his book, Regenerative Viticulture, um, I, I don't know if he said that, or if he was quoting somebody, the vine has ceased to be the organism of interest. The organism of interest now is the soil. And um, who'd have thought that soil would become such an absolutely fascinating subject? I did the two days at the soil conference and um, it was fascinating because it was super geeky. It was all scientists, you know, yeah. and and. I thought that was fascinating. It wasn't business, marketing, comms. It wasn't about selling. It was literally about nematodes and carbon sequestration. Yeah. And um, and the fact that you could get that many people in a very uncomfortable room um, to to dig into farming soil water practices says a lot about, I would say, uh, our industry's commitment to change. I don't know if that's translating into consumer awareness or understanding. Well, this, this is where I think it gets really interesting because, um, you know, the, 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 the regenerative farming, um, you know, it, it, it has become, it is now tipping over into the mainstream. You've got, you've got, you know, you've got that documentary, um, called um kissing the ground that woody harrelson um yep. woody harrelson narrated you've got james rebanks in this country who's a regenerative farmer up in the lake district um who's a very very savvy brilliant communicator and absolutely a man with an almost kind of you know hobbit like oneness with the soil you know and um then you have Patagonia coming in. And I thought so what James Rebank said, and I didn't quote him in the piece, but I thought it would have been interesting. He was saying the thing is, it still is what he's doing is incredibly exciting and fun and it, it, wonderful to be able to see barn owls coming back into your land, et cetera, et cetera, leaving meadows to, you know, all this. But he said he's still not making any money. And it is unbelievably hard work for very little profit. And so he's convinced himself and he's convinced his family and he's convinced some of the Guardian readers. But has he convinced his neighbours? He doesn't think so, you know. And I think that's where Patagonia comes in, because if Patagonia can show that this this sort of um, 
this sort of approach to viticulture and agriculture can also be profitable. It can only be a good thing because that's it always comes down to, to, to profit and yield, doesn't it, basically? Because the moment you go organic, the moment always, you, it always comes down to money. Yeah. Yield goes down, you know, and and, um, you know, and money goes as we as we always see. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about the Patagonia lineup is that it's not private label wines. You know, they are sourcing from known producers. And so, again, going back to the idea of money, if we suddenly see a marketplace that is really leaning into embracing regenerative agriculture brands, brands who are doing things right, purpose-driven brands, whatever it may be, then that says to us, okay, doors are opening. You know, places where maybe one time we would have struggled to get representation. I actually go all the way back to early organic wines. So we had clients who didn't want to put on their bottles that they were organic because there was a time when, you know, the feeling of being organic actually meant that we were producing a lesser quality wine and relying on that organic label to sell it. I was talking to Liz Clement, who is um, director of a winery in Argentina. This was last week's episode. And she said on the record that they actually would get paid less for their grapes when their grapes were organic. And, and so they had to go through a whole process of not communicating that they were organic in order to correct some pricing issues and then now being able to go back to say that they're organic. So, I mean, we'll see how that works, having, having big names, um, giving us mad props for it. But the, on the other side of it, so we've got Patagonia, which is, you know, I'm going to describe it as camper's wine. I think that's probably not right, but it is very much for the down to earth, you know, return to the earth kind of audience in a sense. But then we also have the whole thing that's going on where we've just had a $30,000, 30,000 pound, I'm going to get that wrong, you know, bottle opened at Annabelle's. How do we, you know, so, and, and I, it's funny, I actually can get behind some of what the producer is saying about it, you know, like what the ethos of the, it's Lieber Potter, is that right? Lieber Potter yeah. Um, yeah. wine is. I mean, have you have you tasted that? Do you know yeah. much about that? You've tasted it? Yeah, no, no, I've tasted the 07 oh. and the 15. Um, I think the 15 was the one that went. Damn, you're fancy, Adam. For well, this was uh, um, this was just before lockdown, actually, just before the pandemic hit. In um, uh, it's a company, uh, new um, start startup, but then um, called Oino, um, O E N O. Um, um, mm -hmm. run by um, Justin Nock and, and various others, and they're specializing in these very, very high-end wines. And it's fascinating. When I, I wrote about it, and I, I, I was saying this, um, and, and when, it, when they had this Annabelle's tasting, I, re, I looked it up, what I'd sort of said about it, and um, I was deeply unimpressed by the 2007, um, which I thought was way evolved. And, um, and I was so sort of concerned by this. I was sitting next to Tim Triptree of um, of Sotheby's in in New York in um, Hong Kong, and um, we sort of exchanged glances. And I actually emailed him afterwards and asked if I could quote him. And and he he was saying the same thing. I wanted a second opinion on this. You know, it was evolved. It was you know the tannins were way too dry for it for for, for a wine of that age um, and that price. Um, I thought the 2015 was lovely, but it's one of these classic things. It was a, obviously a very, very nice wine, very good wine, you know. Um, 
Um, and we can't disappear down that rabbit hole of is it worth 30,000 quid or not? Because, I mean, you know. No, I mean, look, we all know that that's a decision, right? That's a mindful decision. I, I, I'm not even going to concern so much about that on the trade and production side. But what I wonder is, you know, in wine communication, I noticed that there's this tendency to lump all wine together. And so we've got natural wines and we've got canned wines and we've got Patagonia provisions and we've got Lieberpotter. And, you know, like, how do we actually using communicators like yourself, but also using, you know, so you are, you are a veteran wine journalist pre-internet days, but now we've got bloggers, we've got prosumer bloggers, we've got influencers. Like, how do we actually simplify the language that will allow us to talk about uh, Kindeli natural wine via Patagonia and a Copper Crew canned wine and a Libra Pater, and then just what I would describe as our like everyday drinking wines. How do you do that when you're writing? I think, well, it comes back to that broad church thing, doesn't it? I mean, is this not, um, you know, very, very similar to, 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 you know, the motoring industry, for example, the car industry, where you have, um, you know, you have your Maseratis at the very, very top. Um, and then you have, you know, then you go down through every single level of the pyramid, don't you, to, um, to the... Yeah, the but nobody you. sits around and says we have to educate them about why they need to buy a Maserati. We're just like, you either have the money and the interest and you're in the right, you know, you're in the right socioeconomic group or you're not. We're not sitting around being like, we need to tell them why the Maserati is worth the extra money, which is but what we do in wine. Yeah, well, but with the Lieberpatter and with, with all the kind of luxury wines of the world, that basket of, you know, very, very, very expensive wines that do get up very quickly to the 20,000, 30,000 pound a bottle level. Um, you know, that is the bona fide luxury end, isn't it? And you're not having to educate anybody to buy that wine because that's, it's, that's the classic thing. That, that's the Maserati end where, you know, if you have to ask how much it is, you can't afford it. And, um, and then you get that whole raft of different wine buyers who are aspirational. And, you know, many of them will aspire to having, you know, that Bordeaux first growth or that, you know, that Burgundy Grand Cru Classic or whatever. Um, and the education is, is really just actually in the middle, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really in that sort of very, very, very central kind of mid, mid range of people who you want to get to, you know, you want to move them on from, Seven ninety nine to ten ninety nine to fifteen ninety nine up to twenty pounds, and that's that's the most difficult part, isn't it? That that you, you don't need to convince people to spend thirty grand; you need to convince them to spend twenty five quid. And I I find that incredibly hard. I always tell them that you know this bottle of wine is twenty five pounds. Twenty five pounds is what you pay for a cinema ticket in central London. Um, and you know if you go out to the cinema, and if you also damn buy, yeah, fifty you can easily pay twenty five pounds. I think the average is about fifteen. Um, but if you buy popcorn as well, that's another fiber. If you get a babysitter, that's another 30, 40 quid. You can easily spend a hundred pounds on a cinema trip. And you know, the amount of work that goes into making that bottle of wine is just the same as the amount of work, you know, the, the, the skill levels and the, you know, um, are exactly the same. So, so that, that's, that's the, where the trick comes, I think. And then all the rest is just sort of noise. Around Lieberpatter, it's just kind of noise, I think. But can I say one other thing about Lieberpatter and Loic Pasquet, who makes it, is that um, his methods, um, you know, he's, 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 
I don't, I don't think he's a charlatan. I think he knows he's onto a good thing, but I don't think he's a charlatan because he has, um, you know, he, he has the respect of very, very serious winemakers all around the world for his methods, you know, for, you know, the idea of using ungrafted wine. I don't think he's a charlatan at all. Just so you know, yeah. I, I actually yeah. think that that, that it's, it's not just, um, it's not just luxury. So I tell this story in the context of parenting. Um, my kids went to a, a very purist Steiner school when they were growing up. And, you know, there's always in any space where, you know, forget what you think of Rudolf Steiner or anything else. But if you're just looking at the pedagogy, you always have those like dyed in the wool purist. You know, you are going to have it the way that they believe it was meant to be. A lot of times you might look at it and be like, no, that's ridiculous. But it's so important that they exist because without that that level of real belief in the purity of something, it's easy for us to lose touch with the heritage and the foundation, whatever. So I actually think that what he's doing is some amazing messaging. It's great press. You know, I think that it it does open a door for like, interesting education and storytelling. So I'm not dismissing it at all. I just think that I know as I know from my own client experience that even producers have a hard time understanding that it's not a broad church. You know, you have your people and your people are based on a set of decisions you made. And if you want to have his people, you have to have different decisions, you know? Um, so, so it's, it's, it's quite challenging. Um, last question. You came before you went into wine. You wrote about film and music. Yes. Isn't that true? Was that like a thousand thousand years ago? No, no, it's not that long ago. No, it's um, yeah, no, no, certainly. I, I but, but I, I was very much. Um, I mean, communication-wise, this is interesting. You know, I was I was working in a, in a press agency. Basically, this was pre-paparazzi. Um, so. This was, um, you know, in the mid '90s, um, before digital, um, and we—it was a press agency um, that specialised in gossip. And this was like the big. This was at the in the Britpop era. This is when we would spend, um, you know, four or five hours um, outside Noel Gallagher's house, um, Supernova Heights in St John's Wood, you know, waiting for Noel to come home. And when you saw him coming down the street, you know, the press pack would be onto him, you know. Um, and so I was not in any way a, a, a sort of serious film or music journalist. We, we were, but what was interesting from a from a from a journalism point of view is that you were taught um, the the hard way that you had to produce, and we had to produce seven stories a day. And if you didn't produce seven stories a day, you were given a major bollocking in the press conference the next morning. Um, so there'd be a press conference every morning at ten o'clock with the whole team, with the editor, and about seven or eight journalists. And it would be Adam, you know, you only produced five stories yesterday. What happened? And you'd say, and no excuse, there, there's never an excuse. And so you would learn to create a story literally out of nothing and um, almost literally out of nothing. And <laughs> Holy shit, you, it's you know, the Daily Mail. I, I, would, I would recommend to anybody wanting to get into journalism, I'd recommend that because it kind of beats out of you this idea that you're producing kind of gorgeous gorgeous purple prose that's going to last forever you know you're producing you know as they always say tomorrow's chip papers so um yeah yeah it's a, i'd say you know very very wow. good training but don't dignify it with the uh, with uh, serious film or, or or music journalism 
I, I guess what struck me about it, although that's a great story, is I'm like, oh, film and music, that sounds like so much fun. And and we do struggle with storytelling in wine. Um, and, and, you know, I just, I was wondering when I saw that in your bio, if there were moments that you sat looking, you know, you go from film and, and music into wine and you sat there thinking, oh, we need a little bit of storytelling umph. We need a little bit of messaging umph. Absolutely. Always, always, always. But on, the, on you know, the film side, I spent so many, many hours sitting in, you know, don't, you know what a donut is, you know, where you, you sit there and you have the, you've got the, you've got, for the sake of argument, Greg Wiseman, you know, presenting his legs, not Greg Wiseman, Greg Wise, um, you know, and he's sitting in the middle there and he's got a ring of like 30 journalists around him, you know, and all he wants to talk about is the film. All the journalists want to talk about is his relationship with Judy, with um, with um, uh, Emma um, Emma Thompson. You know, he, he just started going out with her at the time, and they've been together now for about twenty five years. Um, and so, you know, the story I wanted was, you know, what are you doing with Emma Thompson? What's happening? What's the state of your marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's just batting away those questions. He wants to talk about his, you know, his presentation, his his characterization, you know, how he's dealing with this, you know, how he's sort of, you know, method acting, etc. But, but so, so the stories don't come any easier when you, even when you've got a die, you know, 100% A-list celebrity in front of you. Um, and in wine, it's, it's, it is really, really hard because wine is essentially a very boring subject if you're not actually drinking it, you know, talking about wine. I mean, who was it said that? Oh, but it shouldn't be. Yeah. We, we have great wine stories. We have great producer stories. Like that's, I, I think that that's the thing that, just sort of breaks my heart. I, you get into a room, I'm certain you do this, you get into a room and you talk to the people. We go to something like the London Wine Fair, which is, you know, going back to the Copper Crew team being there behind the the booth, you know, giving their own message. You talk to the people who are doing it and there is a love affair. Otherwise, we would never do this for a living. It's too damn hard and there's not enough money in it, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and just getting that expression of, what we love about our industry, transmitting that is so hard. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the space where if we could get the trade, if we could get the other people, we could get all those distributors just loving what we are doing as much as we do, then can we yeah. be more joyful and dynamic? It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, but it's the eternal, it's the eternal question, isn't it? It's, it's the, because the, the wine producer, it's the eternal standoff between really a very, very basic elemental level between journalist and wine producer. The wine producer has his or her story to tell. They probably want to talk about malolactic fermentation and wastewater treatment. And you have to tease out of them that story. And that's what's so interesting. Talking about stories, though, Polly, just the last thing on stories is that you just, you know, it's, it's, it's the absolute, it's, it's not the wine, it's not the wine trade's fault that they're not getting their stories out. It's, it's always going to be the journalist's fault and the communicator's fault. We've got to pull the stories out of them. You know, it's pull, not push. Well, see, I, I sit on the marketing side of it where I say it's also, and I don't like to say any, it's anybody's fault, but everyone <laughs> needs to have their hands, I think, in that pie. Like, I can't make wine. You know, th that's what I say to my clients. I can't make wine, but I can tell stories of how you make wine. And so together, that's a good team. I mean, I don't know if you can make wine or not, but you can certainly transmit and convey those stories in a way that I can't, in a way that they can't. And, um, and, and I guess just 
more working together and less fatigue and frustration with each other, even though I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Yes. More working together. I like, I like that. Yes. All right. Well, Adam, I know that you have more things to do with your day. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming and giving me the goss on London Wine Fair. I, I hope that I can get there next year. No, great to talk to you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. And a great big thank you to Adam for joining us today. The Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with daily episodes. Tune in each day and discover all our different shows. Be sure to join us next Sunday for another look at the world of wine marketing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.